Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Every few months, I like to record one of these I Don't Believe in That God episodes. These are conversations with people who do not identify as Christian. They are not debates, though. Rather, they are attempts to understand the other person's perspective with plenty of hopefully interesting rabbit trails along the way. And toward the end of these conversations, I like to try and summarize the ways in which we both overlap and differ. In other words, I like to see whether or not I, in fact, believe in the God that they don't believe in. And my conversation partner today is Luke Barnett. He is an actor, writer, and producer. Luke Barnett, it's great to have you back, man. Uh, I really enjoyed our chat in the fall about your movie, Faith Based, People can go back and find that episode. I think it's something like the Christian movie industry or something like that is the title. Yeah. Uh, with you and your director, buddy. But uh, I've been following you on Twitter and we've been DMing a little bit since then. And uh, one thing that I've noticed is, you know, you didn't have to tweet about faith stuff. You know, just because you made a movie, sure. a comedy movie about Christian movies, like – you, you've you been often tweeting about, like, your evangelical upbringing and stuff, which is 
we're, we're no longer in the realm of promo for the film, I think. Uh, yeah. And you're like choosing to, to talk about it. And that got me thinking, hey, we should do one of these episodes because it's obviously been on your mind. I know that you've had some faith change. I don't know exactly where you've landed. I'm excited to find out. And so I thought one of these would be good. So thanks for joining me. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's an interesting thing because I, I you know, obviously I, I did have that background and making our movie, you know, which, yeah, promo is over. It's free on Amazon now if you have it. But 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 people who I think come from this background have obviously kind of resonated with it because it's about two guys making a Christian movie. But what, what I found kind of interesting is that the conversations that I've had because of that movie, whether it's doing podcasts like yours or just through, you know, Twitter or, or friends from back home, it's almost like made that conversation come to light more than it ever really would have had a reason to. So thanks for having me. Yeah. That's really my goal is to take people who are making, you know, pop culture fair and sort of insert myself into their lives to, to force an existential yeah. moment of crisis. That's my goal. I, I, I wish that you were just showing up at my doorstep with a bottle of whiskey like, hey, guy, I know you made a movie, but we're going to talk about this. Yeah, it'd be like I, starting a new show where I only talk to like comedians and like television writers, but we but only no talk. there's no humor. There's no humor. We're just like, so what's your what's your biggest source yeah, yeah. of pain and dread? Yeah, yeah. that you know? joke about, uh, about your dad leaving. Let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> So when did he leave? Yeah. um, (laughs) uh, No, but uh, that's great. I mean, I think that that's kind of how things happen in life. You you work on something, it it brings up old things. I actually just just anecdotally, I I heard from a patron the other day that he is friends with the people who made that Netflix film A Week Away, which is a Christian film, summer camp movie. But apparently, they are progressive Christians. This is now. I'm going to try and get them on the show because. That's an interesting conversation because uh, we did a we did a like a we were drinking, but we did a commentary on that film for the patrons with sure. a bunch of friends of mine, and you know, so I was not paying as close of attention as I could have been. I probably I probably couldn't honestly get myself to pay close attention to a Christian camp musical, yeah, which is where I'm at in life. But yeah, yeah, if that's true. Then there's a bunch of really interesting behind the scenes stuff to talk through with them because it wasn't super on the nose. It was more just like it reminded us of our youth group. They're obviously like our age and, you know, that kind of a thing. Sure. Uh, So there's something interesting there about the, the more the more complex lives of the people who are putting this stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so curious where I've had a lot of conversations with some people recently who have made Christian movies who have tried to. And this isn't about that movie. I ha- I've only seen like the first 20 minutes of that movie, to be honest. But yeah. I've had some conversations recently with some filmmakers who have made Christian movies in the last year. And they speak on how they're attempting to kind of make a good Christian movie or a funny Christian movie or whatnot. And like, I don't want this to sound at all like that my, our movie is so great because there's definitely a lot of people that did not enjoy our movie or probably don't think it's funny or whatever. But like, <laughs> for the most part, it's like they would send me the cuts of their movie and I was still just like, ah. It's you're still you're still making like a, 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 a you now you just have an Irwin Brothers movie with like a different theme and less famous actors. It's like, right. you know, it's like it's a tricky. I'm excited. Like, you know, the, we, the only one I've really liked so far of Christian movies really is uh, I really enjoyed um, Blue Like Jazz because I thought that that was at least a, an attempt to tackle someone like actually questioning their faith or struggling with their faith or whatnot right. versus just a, a way to like you know, sugarcoat ultimately a Christian movie with 
edgier humor or or nostalgia or whatever it is you know um yeah it's tricky well luke let's start with your childhood so you and i are the same age i, I think you're still 37 38 38 okay yeah all right so i'm i'm almost there but you grew up you've described it as evangelical so where was that and and flesh that out for us what do you mean by evangelical yeah so i grew up in uh I, I was born in D.C., Washington, D.C., and I basically spent the majority of my kind of youth in Clinton, Maryland, which is essentially a really uh, kind of a suburb right outside of southeast D.C. My dad was kind of a interim pastor. He drove a bread truck as a like as his main source of income, but he had been a pastor like back in the day. And so he would also throughout my life kind of fill in at churches when somebody was going to go on paternity leave or something yeah. happened, you know, he'd kind of go in for three weeks and be the pastor. It's interesting over this pandemic, sorry, not to totally change topics, but uh, one really interesting thing over the pandemic is when people were first getting on these zooms all the time of zoom trivia and zoom things, we actually saw it as an excuse. My mom, my mom passed away when I was 17 and her, I'm very close with her family. And it was kind of interesting because we, use the pandemic as a way to, you know, my uncle's really old and we can, my, I don't have my grandparents here. And so I organized these zoom family. Like I basically like opened up a word doc and was like, uncle Jim, can you just tell us our family history sort of thing? Whoa. And that and it was so, I recommend anyone to do something like this because just having like the oldest person in your immediate family basically go through and say like, and then we moved here and this is why, and this is who did this was so informative to me in a million different ways. Some people probably know a lot more than I did. I didn't have a lot of like his family history, but where I'm getting that here is that I was always curious. I found out a while ago that like my mom had been married before I was ever born, had my sister with her husband at that time, ended up marrying my, getting divorced, marrying my dad when my sister who's older than me was like six and so I've only ever grown up with him and I, I was born from him and stuff. But what was so interesting to me is that I was always wondering when my mom became an evangelical Christian, like when did she get into this whole world? Was it because of my dad? Was that, and that's kind of what I learned was that like she, the, the, my, my sister's father was like total, like degenerate, like drag racer, sort of like thing and then my mom later on after she divorced him met my dad who was a super evangelical christian so when they got married my mom kind of became a, a hyper evangelical christian so i when i grew up it was interesting because like my sister's older than me and my dad over the course of time he did get more i wouldn't use the word liberal but he got more uh, relaxed because he came from the world of like women don't wear pants like he was that strict back in the like 70s and so uh by the time I was born and kind of old enough to go to school, my mom actually decided to get a job teaching kindergarten at a Christian school so that I could basically attend this. My sister and I could attend this private school. Yeah. So I went to a school called Grace Brethren Christian School. If you've ever seen the movie Saved, it is that high school. I was just listening to the uh, the Good Christian Fun episode about that movie Saved and reliving. I've, I've seen it probably four or five times. So it was that school from Saved. Oh my wow. god! Like like two uh, two at it is that school. And granted, it's funny. Like looking back, I had some very very good memories of going to a school like that in the sense that it was small enough 
that you were able to know everybody, which, which like at the time, I don't know that I love, but I looking back, I'm like, ah, oh, that was cool. Like, I like that my school was small enough that I knew all the people in different classes. Like you got to be involved in like any extracurricular activities. It wasn't just like when you go to a huge high school and it's like, you maybe will get to play one sport or something. It's like, right. no, I got to like play multiple sports, do theater, yeah. you know. By the way, has anybody made a better film about Christian culture than Saved in 20 years or so? Dude, so so my my old, my former roommate and one of my best friends, her stepsister is Mandy Moore. And uh and so like what the the times I've met Mandy, it's just like I'm sure everyone knows her or or thinks of her as as a celebrity from something but i was i was like i was like this is the you you're not a, you're not a pop star you're not this is us you know yeah yeah uh, it's, you're it's from an, saved yeah a, per, yeah a perfect movie to me it is a fantastic film so okay a lot of really interesting stuff in there so i do want to talk a little bit about your dad and your mom so let's let's start with your dad so I, I always find it really helpful to consider these kind of life trajectories, which you already basically talked about with your dad of like he came from really fundamentalist and he ended up more chill, but still yeah. evangelical, you know, whatever. Like my my father-in-law, without disclosing too much of his personal history, like he stopped a cycle and, you know, whatever issues I might have with him, when I zoom out and consider his dad – and that what he was raised with, yeah. I'm like, man, like, good job, you yeah. know, and I'm grateful because then he raised my wife, right? So uh, that's always very good. So that in that in mind, like, tell me about the faith of your dad and how that was imparted to you throughout your life. Sure. It's interesting. I actually want to ask him now. I don't really know. I don't really know the story of when my dad became a Christian. Like, I'm very curious if that, you know, because he came, my dad's from like a very rural area of Missouri. And I I don't really know what his parents were like, you know, religion wise. But my dad was very much the Billy Graham, you know, evangelist. My dad, like if you if you were to like go back and study a, a Billy Graham of the world, that would be probably to this day, my dad's kind of North Star Mm-hmm. for how to be a Christian. Like he's such a you know, pure believer in kind of being a fisher of men, for lack of a better term. He's yeah. a true believer of his kind of entire reason to be on earth is to basically show people the love of God. In one sense, he takes it more seriously than a lot of his co-religionists, right? Because absolutely, it's like, I have respect for people who take that and do it. You know, Same. they're like, yeah. Oh no, no, this, this really is. So yeah, I will drive a bread truck, but like when I get the opportunity, I will go preach and he will leave it. He will be on his bread truck and he will leave a track. So, you know, he, he, he is a firm, okay. uh, he goes yeah. for it. And, and it's weird because I, while all of those things did and do bother me in a lot of ways and in sure. this, more, more in the sense that I just don't think any, it's, that's not how it works. Like no one, right. you know, oh, great. You left your waitress at Denny's a track. She's not going to just <laughs> yeah. be like, oh my gosh, what have I been missing? But at the yeah. same time, I will say you're right. It's an interesting thing I've never thought about that I agree with is that I almost have more respect for the person that says, 
I take the Bible completely literal and I, and because of that, I'm going to do it versus like, well, I kind of take these things literal, but I'm not going to be that guy. It's like, well, you're, you're either right. like that guy doing your job or you're, you know, well, I, I kind of perked up when you, when you described your dad as basically bivocational pastor, right? Like he, he had his day job uh, and he pastored for the love of it. I mean, he obviously didn't, it, it's pretty clear he didn't do those interim jobs because like the money was incredible. If he was if he was motivated by money, I yeah. would imagine he would have tried to get a more lucrative career than my, my than, dad. Absolutely, you know? like his his dream would have been like in the same way that I would want to write a movie or something. His dream would have probably been to like pastor a mega church. You know what right. I mean? To be like a sure. successful pastor. Um, I think even now however realistic or unrealistic it is. I think if he had his dream retirement, he's, he's mentioned to me, like he wants to go have a farm somewhere. That's like a Christian farm where he can have kids. Right. You know, Cause he basically, he transitioned careers once I was older and, and he started working kind of in the, in juvenile hall, like juvenile detention facility. Um, and I think see, working with those kids, his dream now that he's retired would kind of be to like open up a place where inner city kids could basically go find Jesus on a farm, right. which is a movie that I probably could have made for faith-based yeah. as a parody of the Christian movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's still time actually yeah, there's still to sequel, do it in real life. Sequel is going to be uh, Jesus on the farm. <laughs> well, we don't have to talk about all the, all the things that we, I think listeners could fill in the gaps on why neither of us, love that approach to evangelism and whatever engagement with the world. But there is obviously a soft center to it that is uh, authentic and that lines up with his values. He doesn't have cognitive dissonance about it. It's him living out his values. And I, I like that. Let's talk about your mom. So she passed when you were 17. What was the faith relationship like before she passed? As I look back, it was very clear that my mom while she was definitely like a person of faith, she was very different than my dad. My my sister and I were both growing up like very close to my mom. And sometimes I was close to my dad. Sometimes I wasn't. But my mom I was very close with. And she, you know, she was a Christian. She worked at a Christian school. She was heavily involved. But I, I think she would have been kind of the same person and the same involvement in different things. If she, if I was at a public school and it had nothing to do with that, she was just mm-hmm. a very happy, involved kind of parent and teacher. And so I think like faith was important to her, but I don't think that she was, I know she wasn't nearly as much of kind of a, a fundamentalist type person. I think she more saw the positives of a Christian community. She yeah. saw the morals that come with a Christian upbringing and she kind of, saw all those things as kind of a welcome way to raise her family. And did she see those virtues instantiated in your dad as opposed to her ex-husband? I'm sure, especially like when she met my dad in the beginning of it, I'm sure it was like, okay, I found this person that's basically the polar opposite of this terrible experience that I had. But like, as it kind of went on, it was an interesting childhood because I don't know how close they were. My mom and dad in marriage were as mm-hmm. I was a kid. And then she, she obviously passed away early, but like talking to my sister now, who's like I said, like 10 years older than me, she had more insight into that. And it, and it was, it was interesting, you know? Yeah. It maybe didn't pan out in that kind of movie, movie ending sure. sort of a way, but sure. you could see how perhaps she was drawn to that. And yeah, and I'm just, just putting my kind of psychologist in training hat on here. The fact that she was so involved in your upbringing 
and really wanted, you know, kind of a robust and wholesome community-based family life where where she's sort of thickly involved in schooling and church, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you were closer with her, but she died when you were 17, leaving you with your rest of your family. And she was the more moderate faith influence. I guess I'm now I'm kind of fishing, but was there a change in the family faith dynamic? Obviously you were about to kind of go out of the house, but was there, did, did your dad's faith get sort of more pure and crystallized without that kind of moderating wife? Or was he kind of on his own trajectory no matter what? It it was interesting from my perspective, because my dad and I were not super close when my mom passed away, I very quickly became an adult. Like I basically like lived on my own with a roommate at 18. So it was like the minute I, the minute I kind of could, I did. Yeah. And then I moved to LA a couple years later, but like definitely when my mom passed away, it felt like I was just kind of suddenly an adult. And so my faith project, my, my stuff kind of, you know, kind of stayed the same in the sense that I was still involved in youth group and still certain people that were from, I was very much in a bubble of my school um, where all my friends were and where my mom worked and everything like that. Who, But my dad, I think his, I don't know at that time how much it changed. It probably kind of like stayed the same trajectory later on in life. Like he got remarried and, and the woman that he remarried, it's kind of funny. My sister and I joke about this a lot. I love my mom, but it's just so funny. The woman that my dad remarried is it, 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 it is him. Like it was almost as if like you were you're kind of like how was my mom with him? She was so different, but this woman that he just that he married, you know, in the last 15 years right. is like that's the person. You know, if they were together when we were kids, she would have also bought the like cheesy t-shirt and been like, you know, right. leaving the tracks at the diner and stuff. And so I actually think since then his faith has like almost started to kind of go back to how he probably originally was now that he's Mm -hmm. with somebody who's much more on the same page as him. And I also think as anyone, as any of us get older, I think especially when you start to get much older, you start to have a, if you're, if you're somebody who really believes in the Bible as literal, you start to have much more of a feeling as you get closer to, to death, for lack of a better word of like, oh man, I got to make sure everyone's saved. I got to make sure my things are set up. And so it's been kind of interesting as he gets older to see kind of him almost go back to being more Mm -hmm. fundamentalist in a way. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to pick up at you in LA. So now you're an adult, uh, you're 20 or so. Uh, But is there anything we should know about, I guess we haven't really talked about your own experience as a teen and kid. Sure. Um, anything that you'd like to fill in from the time in, in Maryland before we zoom out to California? I mean, really the only thing I would say, and I'm sure you guys have, have talked on this a, a hundred times, but like the thing that's the, that I found the most interesting about growing up super evangelical Christian, which stayed with me for a long time, like into me living in L.A., is just the idea. I was never, I was a, I hate to say like a bad kid, but I was definitely like, you know, into the secular things. I got into trouble a lot, all that stuff. And what I think was so interesting about everybody that I've spoken to from this world is just the constant, almost like reclaiming your faith and then drifting away from it. It was, it's such a funny the cycle. cycle, the cycle, yeah. the cycle. And so that's something that like really never didn't leave me for a long time. Like through, through probably my first, I don't know, however many years in LA, you would have moments of like, ah, I got to like be on fire for Jesus. I got to like do this. I got to be doing it for this. And then all of a sudden you backtrack and 
you know, it starts when you're in, in junior high and you're at, at youth conference burning your CDs and it ends when you're like 24 at a bar. You know what I mean? It's like um, <laughs> it's like there's there's a big long cycle with a bunch of mini cycles in, yeah. uh, you know, nested underneath it. A hundred percent. And I would yeah. go through when I, when I started to move to L.A., I would go through big, big phases of that where when I first moved here, I was actually dating somebody already who had become an intern at mosaic, which is like a very big hip kind of hipster yeah, church big here. Hip church. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I, when I first got here, I was like, Oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to lead drama at mosaic. I'm going to do this. And I did, and I'd be like on fire for Jesus. But then I'd also like go have sex with my girlfriend and then get like, feel like terrible about it. And like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? We shouldn't be doing this. We have to go speak to the leaders. You know, it's just like such a wild ride, man. Yeah. Okay, lots to pick up on there. I want to say really briefly that the idea of the this this sort of like sin return, sin return, you know, kind of on fire. Oh yeah. That, you know, there's obviously a there's a real heightened version of that that happens especially like in youth group and with teenagers and all their hormones it it gets kind of amped up. And then I made a joke about and then there's also you zoom out, there's like one big one with all these little ones nested. But uh-huh. there actually there kind of is. Like for instance, the time that people most often return to church is when they have young children. Uh, and you could see that as a kind of a, like this yeah. thing happens and you go, oh, you know, I need to look into this again. This. Yeah. Right. And you you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the impetus for that, like you talked about your time at that Christian school, how because it was smaller and less intimidating, you couldn't like only make your mark in one sport. You could like try everything and sure. and kind of see where you flourish and people, they start to think about that for their kids and their kids get a certain age. It's just interesting. There is yeah. something kind of human about all of that yeah. that is related to our culture, but also unrelated to our well, culture. Well, I mean, we talk about this a lot in our movie, like in Faith Based. It's like it's like everyone is looking for community, whether you find it like I, were, I worked in neighborhood dive bars for like over a decade. And what people who go there on a regular basis a lot of people would think of them as just, you know, like, ah, he's an alcoholic that has to go to the bar every day. I'm like, no, most people I know that would be at the bar six days a week wouldn't even like get super drunk. They go there because they don't have some sort of like family or community. They know that if they walk into that bar, somebody is going to know their name, whether it's the bartender or another regular or whatever else. And they're going to have conversation and they're going to talk about politics or whatever the thing was of the day. And I think that at the end of the day, we're all looking for that. And the, and if there's one thing that I, I can't say all churches, but a lot of churches do a good job of, it's just having a place you can go. Like, you know, you could take your family to church on Sunday morning and dress them up and go have brunch and talk to the hundred people that, you know, it's like, I see why I see why people are like, ah, I got to take my kids to church on Sunday and see all these people, you know. I've often thought of those bartenders at those dive bars, and we've got a couple Obviously, it feels like a while ago because of COVID, but we, especially in our previous house, we had one nearby that I liked quite a bit and was obviously very affordable. Um, And I think of those bartenders in there, they are like a kind of poorly paid bottom rung pastor (laughs) for a certain segment of society. And and I, I both feel sad about that, but I also am glad that they are there giving presiding imperfectly over this imperfect sense of community for, for people that often need a little bit of alcohol to feel close to someone. And, and for whatever reason that there's no one else in their life, 
You know, it, it's it's yeah. really it's like oh, that is where Jesus would be hanging out. Like it seems yeah. like obvious to me. You know, yeah, and that's not and, why and, I'm there. I'm there with my sure. well-adjusted white collar friends who love the four dollar drinks. Sure, you know, y- yucking it up with each other. And the truth is that it, it's it's also like. There are a lot of people who, 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 like you said, kind of do need that to bring it out. And there are a lot of people who don't, who just enjoy it, who are right. just like the same right. way that you're going to go enjoy a beer in conversation with your white collar buddy. They genuinely just enjoy a beer in a conversation with, you know, Bo, the guy that just got off work. And it's, you know, it's like, a, right. it's not, it's not necessarily like some sort of, oh, he has, that guy has to be here. It's sure. just like, it's like, sure. He doesn't have the family or whatever, but like a lot of these guys I've, I've met are just like genuinely like, ah, I can't wait to go to no bar on Tuesday, you know? Um, no, yeah, that's, that's true. And I'm, I'm letting a little bit of my classism shine through inadvertently, which is something that I, <laughs> I really do struggle with. I'm, I'm aware of it. I think because I would just be such a beta if I were in a blue collar world, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I would be at the, I'd be at the damn bottom of the of yeah. the barrel, and I think I that works out. In, to be in fair, classes. I should clarify uh, where I am in Los Angeles. It's like the dive bar that I'm talking about is very different than like, you know, I've been to many a like Wisconsin dive bars, and it's right. like this is not the same thing. Right. I'm by the dive bar I'm talking about is like out of New Girl. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. Uh, although I bet you, I I bet you'd find. The whole range. Uh, most of course, places. of course, yeah. of course. So, okay, let's talk about, I think it's interesting that you, you had this kind of cycle of uh, have a big spiritual moment, kind of fall away, mess up and however you want to phrase that and in, in whatever, however you would have said it at the time, then come back, you get out to LA. Now you're in your twenties and you're, look, a lot of people move to LA to become show business people. Most of them don't volunteer to run drama at a mega church. Sure. So we've already this already says something sure. about the sincerity of your faith at that time that carried over. Yeah, well, I think my I think where I was at faith wise was genuine in the sense that like I did believe it and I did think that like why not use my gifts? You know, I remember like literally saying to somebody like, "Oh, we were created to create." You know what I mean? It was like something I truly believed at the time of like, the, you know, the way that we were a beautiful piece of art created by God is we are why we should create beautiful pieces of art for God. You know what I mean? It was like nothing I did in terms of mosaic and whatnot was uh, for an ulterior motive. It really was that I believed in that at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. You had a theology of the arts at that point. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So where's it go from there? You're now in your early 20s. You're doing the mosaic thing. Uh, by the way, this is Erwin McManus's church, if people are, are know that uh, name. The Barbarian Way, was that his book like 25 years that, ago? That was one of them. He, st- one he of them. started yeah. with uh, the artist. No, no, that was a different one. He started with uh, Seizing Your Divine Moment was his ah. big first hit. Okay. he's Yeah, he's interesting. We could have a whole podcast where I could talk about Erwin McManus. These days, he is like in his 60s and dresses like a 25-year-old. That's my chief complaint against him. I don't know very much about him otherwise. One of the first impetuses for us leaving Mosaic was was just going there and being like, this is a man who's 61 years old and looks like he just got out of like a Justin Bieber concert. Yeah. 
what's going on. And then it, and, it, and we, then we, it was, that's not why we left. There was a lot of reasons we left, but that was just like a moment of like, what is, what is this? And then the last decade where I haven't been there really has just been so interesting to like, see, you know, there's been a lot of commentary on social media, myself included of like his, he's got a new clothing line where you can buy $3,000 jackets and $300 t-shirts. And it was just like, what in the world, man? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway. uh, well, I will say I'll give I'll give him a big a big positive is that and this is way to 15 years ago, I still to this day would say Erwin McManus is one of if not the greatest speakers I've heard in this whole world. Like mm-hmm. I mean in, in the in the kind of Christian motivational speaker space, he's a phenomenal orator, a very intelligent person. And so when we first went to Mosaic, it was like a very welcome like even my wife, who who we can talk about, but she's Jewish, you know, didn't grow up Christian at all. She would go to Mosaic because she enjoyed hearing Irwin talk. And I was like, that says something about him in general. It's almost sad that it's just turned into such a show, you know. How soon did you meet your wife when you got out there? I probably met her four years into me being, or maybe 2008. I, I met her four years into me being in Los Angeles. Okay, so so fairly I'd love to get into that, but so anything that we should hit before you meet your wife? No, it was interesting. Like my first few years in Los Angeles were interesting because I I, I was heavily involved in Mosaic, but I got a job at a very popular Hollywood bar. And so it, talk about like the circle and the con- the shame culture and the conflict. It yeah. was a weird thing to be kind of like volunteering at this mega church. And, and in one part of my brain, like we have to do this and this and this. And the other part of my brain was like, it's really fun to do shots at this super popular bar. And, and now that I'm not dating the girl that was interning at the church, it's like, I should date the cocktail waitress of this bar, which I did. And it right. was just like a, a kind of two worlds going on at the same time. You know, well, I want to talk about that. Let, let's, let's sit there a minute before we, we get into uh, ser- <laughs> monogamy. But I'm, I'm, I'm most interested in the tension uh, of that period, yeah. of the, the sort of two lives thing. So maybe just say a bit more about that. Well, it was just interesting. It was like it was kind of the same thing that you talk about with people when they're like high school age, you know, falling into to sin, for lack of a better word, and then going to a youth conference or something and, and, and finding Jesus again. It was kind of the same for me where I would be feeling like, oh, I go to this church that's very cool and I am getting something out of in my mind. And on the other hand, I would kind of be just like leading the quintessential like early 20s person that just moved to Los Angeles and is aspiring to be an actor. So it was like, you know, you work in a bar three or four nights a week with lots of young, attractive people. You know, it's just a very it was the, the when I see people talking about kind of like shame culture from their upbringing, it's like, that was the epitome of it. Like the amount of times, uh, not, not to like go too far into, into graphic detail, but like literally (laughs) like the amount of times that I would not have sex with somebody, but would almost do everything else except for like penis into vagina sex. Because I was like, ah, we save this for when we're really in love. You know what I mean? And, and I remember like, just, you know, the girls I'm dating who did not come from that world are just like, what is they like, what, what? Uh, they were super cool. They never would have said to me, like, what are you talking about? But I'm um, in my mind now looking back, I'm like, yeah. I just thought I was out of my mind, you know? Uh, I, I have memories 
again without getting into details of my of my days in the band when I was not in our band was not the stereotypical like womanizer group. We were dads by comparison. Sure. But I still I had interactions with I don't know, I, I can't remember now, something like five or six women over sure. over seven years. Sure. And I had some personal rules that I thought were reflective of my faith that these girls yeah. were like Dude, what the hell are you talking about? You're in a rock band. I want to be sexual yeah. with you, you know? The, the girls that yeah. I would date were so awesome that they wouldn't see I, – I, as much as I think that in, in their back of their mind, they must have thought I was out of my mind. They would be like, ah, Luke is genuinely – out of all the like assholes in Los Angeles, Luke sure. is a good guy. He's like genuinely like not wanting to take advantage of me sort of thing. And now looking back, I'm like, yes, yeah, sure, great. I'm a nice guy, but also like what a weird rule I set in our relationship. You know what I mean? It was yeah, like, there's, there's a tension uh, between it. – it is probably attractive to a lot of people, men or women, to to be with someone who – acts according to values that they really hold. Yeah. There's a kind of uh, fidelity. Also, the arbitrariness of some of those rules is, yeah. is uh, funny now. Well, the best, part, the best part is that like most of the, of the ones that I'm thinking of were people that I eventually not only did eventually have sex with, but eventually had a really had a real relationship with, whether it was mm. for a few months or, or a few years. But it was like – it was just so funny that I basically like made us wait – an extended amount of time to yeah. have that level of sex to just it's do like, it anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's like, just do it anyway. And it's not like we were just like hugging for that first eight weeks that I made right. us wait. It was like, right. I was just the weirdo that was like, we can only do these specific things. Here's my rule book. Sign a waiver. Yeah. Uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be probably a few months back. The episode with Tony and Lillian about plausible and implausible claims. We talked about this, how there's sort of like a, there's like a therapist way of looking at, sex when you're young where you're think you're thinking about you know intimacy you're thinking about commitment you're thinking about uh STDs pregnancy other things like there's that approach which sure. I will take with my own children sure. and will be very clear with them about and will take with my clients to the extent that they want to know what I think about it and to the extent that I can sort of non-directive non-coercively Get them thinking yeah. about being safe and being wise. Sure. That is separate from penetration into a <laughs> vagina is the only thing that counts as losing yeah. your virginity. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah, that was that's wild. Yeah. So that that is funny. But it's interesting to me, uh, listeners might remember from the most recent I Don't Believe in That God episode with Joey Holman, he grew up in the Atlanta area uh, and was gay. And he had a period of time where he was leading you know, youth group on Sunday morning, but Saturday night he'd be in the clubs in Atlanta and staying up all night and writing his little message uh, in the parking lot right before and basically not sleeping. Yeah, there he had a different kind of a double life, um, and he's also almost exactly our age. And but his was for different reasons, right? A different impetus, different culture sure. that he was in. But there is something about being in that kind of early twenties. Just becoming an adult and the one of the worlds he was really drawn to that he would eventually realize he was going to be a part of was just like the openly gay male community. Yeah. Uh, and he couldn't quite do that. And then you were like trying to come into the entertainment industry and you're in a bar in Hollywood, a bunch of people who are either famous or trying to be famous and and you're meeting – you know, you're kind of – 
you're steeping yourself in that life, but then you've also got this this moral framework and whatever that you brought with you from Maryland. It's interesting to see the parallels there. Yeah, totally. I, and I think that's probably a huge percentage of people. Sure. I mean, it's very common. It's got to yeah. be. Okay, so you eventually you meet your wife, 2007, 2008. She is a non-religious Jewish heritage. Is that what I understood? Yeah, she, she's she's Jewish. Uh, her family is not over, you know, they're not super religious. Uh, right. They're kind of like the Christians that go to church on Easter, you know. Right. So not not super observant. And that's a big event in someone's faith life. You meet a girl that you're eventually going to marry, so you're falling in love with her. She's not religious. Uh, what kind of cognitive dissonance did that provide for you at the time? Gosh. Well, and this actually kind of circles back to what we just talked about. In terms of one of the things that you said about how you co- you come out to Los Angeles with this kind of framework that you had growing up in Maryland, one thing that I think a lot of people must go through one way or the other is, and this is why not that everybody necessarily has to like move to a big city or something, but like, I think it's so pivotal for people to, if you grow up in a total bubble, you have to have experienced some amount of time, not in it, because Mm -hmm. that is the only time you can really figure anything that you believe out is when you're not just surrounded by the same thing you've been told since you were three and the same people that you've known since you were three. So like I grew up in such a bubble of like, went to a Christian school that also functioned as our church that my mom taught at. Like it was such a, that's, that was my whole world that I know people now who I love, like some of my still good friends who now work at that school are involved in that church and have literally just never left that exact circle of people. Mm-hmm. And they're still like, they're some of the nicest people I know They when I came back to DC for our movie and they all were so supportive and I, I genuinely love them but it's hard for me to imagine you would ever really have a question of anything if you've never even stepped out of it. And so coming to Los Angeles with that kind of mentality and framework and belief, and then meeting Emily, who was such a good person, but had no affiliation with that. It was just very interesting. I think the first thing was just like a matter of like, oh, the reason you're good is not because you have to be good to go to heaven or because Jesus tells you to be good. You have ethics and morals and like, they don't have to just come from a book. You know what I mean? It's like, that was a first kind of just probably subconscious. I didn't even really like acknowledge it, but it was there. And then when she started going to mosaic with me, cause she was just so open-minded, like she was just like, yeah, I'll come with you. If that's what you do. It was just very interesting to ask her, like, what are the things here that you like that you think are interesting and fascinating? And what are the things that you, as someone who's never even been in one of these churches, see as kind of crazy? And it was just that was like a big because like her, her biggest thing just right off the bat was which she just I don't know how she'd never seen it in movies or something, but she had never seen real praise and worship music. Oh, really? Yeah. So like the minute she walked into church and, you know, out of the probably 400 people at Mosaic at the time, she sees 50 with like their hands up in the air and they're just like singing and then looking at the lyrics of the song that is just so over the top, like he has made this for us. You know, it was just like, she was just like, this is a cult. This is like a crazy place. Oh, wow. And yeah. then cause she just never like experienced it. And so that was like, just for me, such an observation of like, oh, you're right. Like if I walked into this space and and it wasn't Jesus, it was talking about Elmo and all of a sudden everybody here had their hands up and they were passionately like, 
Elmo is our king. He is the one that will take us all back. I would be like, get me the fuck out of here. This right, is a right. crazy place. And it kind of, she was won back, you know, a little bit by the fact that Mosaic, then after the praise and worship, they would have like great art. They would have like, you know, somebody doing something. And then Irwin would come up and basically, you know, they make fun of it because they call it Christianity light. But at the same time, I was like, this is great. Like, this is a guy who's not preaching fire and brimstone. He's basically like a phenomenal motivational speaker that does it from the perspective of a Christian. And so I I thought he was just the best. And Emily was even just like, yeah, I got something out of that. Like that was a great 30 minute talk. So it was just a very, that was kind of the first, just like, it was very interesting to just like be with somebody who was good and also a first time observer of that world. Fantastic. I have so many things to follow up on there. I first, any other examples of stuff that I'm just curious, like I almost think we should have brought her in for a little segment here on this Ah, this part, but that's fine. But like, do you remember anything else that she said about coming in from the outside around that stuff? Well, there's certain things that we laugh at now. Like one of them would be just like, you know, there was such, even the people that we made friends with and became our friends and stuff, there was such a way of talking specifically at a like, and I, I experience this now, I make jokes about it now, but like in the world of like progressive hip Christians, for lack of a better word, there are so many kind of like terms and stuff that I just think are hilarious. Like the amount of people that we heard say, do life together. Do life together. Uh, yeah. I love doing life together. So uh-huh. glad I get to do life with you. And it was just like, this is just so, so funny. And then the other thing that was like, got so big at Mosaic and I'm sure in, in many places was instead of calling yourself a Christian, they would all call themselves follower of Christ because they felt like Christian had the, the reputation of like a, a, a cliche evangelical, but follower of Christ just meant you weren't, religious you were you were following jesus yeah um and so those were like i mean that the that was all like a lot of stuff that she would think was was interesting now the thing we found the most fascinating is the amount of our friends from mosaic and and i'm making i'm writing a movie kind of about this right now it's a horror movie but but the amount of people that we know that are friends from mosaic that had the exact same trajectory from the time before they moved to los angeles that are now life coaches is the most fascinating thing. Like I know personally, no less than a dozen life coaches from my time at Mosaic and all of them had some sort of similar trajectory of like came from small, boring, normal church, went to super cool LA church, got really involved, became kind of like a, traditional term would be an associate pastor of some sort at mosaic like a a, a leader at mosaic went on to basically like write a christian book and then start you know speaking as a christian speaker at other churches and christian colleges to then going to businesses and speaking from a christian perspective but more about like motivation and less god and eventually worked their way into now i'm just a life coach I mean, I know, I know a dozen that are like personal people that I know. I'm trying to find the tweet now, but it it was making its way around Twitter and Instagram of some, you know, the evangelical pastor to something to secular life coach pipeline is so depressing. And you are, you have a front row seat to that pipeline. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. That, (laughs) uh, yes. And, and they can't be therapists because they didn't actually go to school. You know, one guy we know 
his family fell apart because he, for four years, had been hiding the fact that he'd been having affairs with prostitutes, was a raging alcoholic, all this stuff, all the while he was like a leader at Mosaic and a, and a, and a, and a coach mm. and who now basically went through a year. They got divorced. He went through a year of like kind of falling off the radar social media and came emerged as a new life coach with this company that I'm like, what, what like life coaching your life like fell apart. Like, it's just like, uh, yeah. is it's just called, so... is it called a narcissist personality disorder? Life yeah, coaching? it is. Wi- exactly. <laughs> it is so wild to me. Like, it's like, you know, you have success in something. I'm all for you charging people to give lessons yeah. in that thing that you know how to do well, but like right. life, life. Yeah. That there, it's so funny. Cause it's, it, it's kind of like, to be clear, uh, there are plenty of people who pursue therapy, Sure. Uh, for narcissistic ends and really damaged people. And there are plenty of people who, for whatever reason, can't or or won't or you know can't go get their masters and and do genuinely want to help people. And there are also therapists who do life coaching because it's a way to work with people out of state. Sure. Um, so sure. it's it's complex, but uh, yeah. there is definitely a type of there's a type of narcissistic, usually man who what they really are addicted to is being the person that people come to for advice. Yeah. Which is a bad understanding of what a pastor does and a bad understanding of what a therapist does. Yeah. And it's funny. It's like a therapist does not tell you how to live your life. Like that's just not their job, you know? And what's interesting is that most of the ones that I'm thinking of, they're not even kind of trying to be pseudo therapists of sorts. They basically more go in the line of like, they show a social media image of themselves that is it's it's very similar to somebody who sells weight loss tea or CBD where right. it's like like let me find a way to curate my social media to say look how perfect my life is now right. that I've found this yep. let me help you find this it's just you sales know? it's yeah sales. I mean, it's just yeah. sales at the end of the day it's all sales Oh gosh! Well, that's As fucking... is Jesus. I'm just. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really truly depressing. Uh, one thing I wanted to I wanted to just say briefly that these two phrases "do life together" and "follower of Christ, not Christian." Do life together. I have su- I get hives when I hear it. However, <laughs> I'm 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 full circle on on that concept. Like sure. the more I learn about psychology, the more and like a meaningful human life. The more doing life together is a pretty good phrase totally. for like the most important thing a person can do. Absolutely. Have r- thick community. It also goes back to what we talked about, about everybody seeking community. And one of the things right. that a, a lot of churches do do well is provide this community. Exactly. I think it was I think it was more that if you go anywhere and you hear everyone saying the same term, no matter yeah. how great that term is, uh-huh. you're going to as an outsider, you're going to be like. What's happening here? You what is what this mean? weird cult language? Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. And then the other one, follower of Christ, like that was, yeah, I remember that being big in my twenties. It's always like, oh, I follow Jesus. I'm, I'm not a Christian. I don't know. I don't like the word Christian. And in some sense, I have decided not to go that route. I think Christian is a 2000 year old term and it can survive American white evangelicalism, but kind of ahead of their time back in 2009 or so anticipating the Trump era. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you know what sure. I mean? Like a little bit, but I, I also laughed when you told the, I, it's such a snapshot of a subculture that I'm so familiar well, with. Well, one of the things that I got annoyed with, with that term is more that like, you're saying that these people 
in now you're talking about the Trumps or something, but like you, these people have kind of made Christianity look bad. So you're now saying you're a follower of Christ instead of being associated with those people. My, even back then when I was more in it, my response to that was like, yeah, but if you're like a good person, you're like a cool Christian, why don't you take it back? Like, why don't, like, I would rather like Emily, for example, if she met when she would meet some of our friends who are to this day, some of our closest friends and find out that they're Christians, she was one of the persons that bring that term up to me. Cause she was mm. just kind of like, eh, like such and such is an, is an awesome person. Why are they so oddly like ashamed to like say what they are? Like I would, she would rather, she would have as a, as a total outsider, she would be more impressed and surprised to meet a Christian who was open-minded and cool than someone who was open-minded and cool and was like, I'm not one of them. I'm a follower of Christ. It was right. like, yeah, you're still a Christian. You're it's like you could you could call it whatever you want. You know? I know. Okay, so I know I just brought up the the Tony and Lillian um, episode, but she made a really interesting point. And actually, this is very true of L.A. Where she lives in Iowa, but she said when you talk to someone who is spiritual but not religious or or some version of that, they will say something like, "Now this might shock you." But I think that we see God like actually uh-huh. in nature uh-huh. and actually God's in the sunset. And she's like, well, y- they're now the majority of the population. Uh-huh. It's not uh-huh. shocking. It's yeah, not yeah. rebellious. It's yeah, actually yeah. the normal thing to believe. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so there is a kind of a funny tension there with with if it's different than and I think that this explains it. If it's different than what you were raised with, you think that what you're doing is inherently rebellious and going against the grain. Yeah. It's the same thing if we if we go back 50 years to 1971 and the beginning of the Jesus movement where our boomer parents when they thought that they were being so interesting by not wearing a suit and tie to church uh-huh, uh-huh. and playing guitar instead yeah. of organ. They, hit, they were hippie all yeah. of a sudden, you know. And you know what? All fucking 40 million of them thought they were so countercultural. Yeah. Yeah. They literally became the yeah. culture well, for it, 50 it, years. It's true. It's true. You and know? it's also like to this day, uh, one of the things I think one of the things I said in, in the tweet that made you reach out to me was, but it was just, it's not anything that Emily is again, just somebody who just pointed this out to me. Cause I wouldn't have thought it was that crazy was we have a friend who is a, is a Christian. Her fa- they go to church every Sunday they are one of the that I'm talking about, though, where it's like they are super cool. They're open minded. We love them. They're one of some of our best friends. And we always were surprised that they wouldn't just call themselves Christians and, mm-hmm. and be cool. One of the things that, that a lot of people do that I just find so fascinating is the phase, the phase of it of like cursing more than you would normally curse to showcase that you are basically <laughs> a cool Christian. I'm sh- like, I've surely been guilty of that we, in my we, life. Yeah. Yeah, we know we have lots of people who like you hear them talk and you're like, you know, you're like a super prude, like conservative person. Like, you don't talk like this. Like yeah. uh, you're just talking like this to sound like you're not a stereotypical right. conservative right. Christian, you know. Yeah. And oh, yeah. And, and Emily, my wife barely curses like she curses every now, you know, something comes mm-hmm. out or whatever, but just not who she is, not, not how she talks. I curse more than her. But like. If Emily all of a sudden were to be like over the top cursing, I'd be like, what's up with this? Like, yeah, what are what's you going on? And that's yeah. kind of how it feels where Emily is like, I'm not even a Christian. And you sound like a weirdo to me that you're just like forcing all these words in. OK, so to get us back on a narrative track, even though I really, really enjoyed all of those little tangents we got to go on. 
Uh, when do you get married, by the way? You meet her in 07, 08, and you yeah. get married? Six years later. We got married in 2015. So, okay. uh, But in 2010, yeah. you leave Mosaic together. You're a serious couple. You both stop going. Yeah, we kind of stopped going probably right around that time, yeah. Okay. So you leave Mosaic in 2010. You're dating a non-religious woman who is, however, really beautifully open-minded and has engaged with you at church. Is that when you notice a change in your actual beliefs where you start to feel a shift or does that come later? I think I stopped feeling kind of the need, like the religious shame, for lack of a better word, of feeling the pressure that I had to like be involved in a church in order to like be good. I probably started feeling that around then, but I kind of just didn't, didn't think about it too much for a long time. Like probably from 2010 to like 2000, you know, 16, 17, I was probably just like kind of content with where life was not super concerned with what I believed didn't feel some sort of like pressure to be going to church regularly. We would go every now and again, like if our friend was speaking at one of the two churches that we were, had kind of been involved in, or if we knew friends were going that week or whatnot, we would go. But for the most part, I, uh, I, I just had a very full life outside of the church. Like my wife's whole family's here and they're all like wonderful. So we would go there on, on Sundays and I have lots of great friends out here and, and, was starting to kind of be busier work-wise. And so really, I just didn't think about it too much for that period. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. Patrons get access to the Facebook group, which is patron only, as well as at least two episodes additionally per month. Most recently, I've been talking with Tony Jones about our reactions to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast being produced by Christianity Today. Uh, It's a very well put together podcast and the reaction conversations have been extremely interesting. And the next one coming up in a couple days will include Gerardo Marti. He is a sociologist interviewed for that uh, podcast and he's going to join Tony and I and I can't wait patreon.com slash Dan Coke and we are back to our conversation with Luke so when did you start to change what you believed you know like it beliefs aren't always at the top of mind but eventually you realize I mean it seems to me I don't believe a lot of this stuff anymore when, when did you when did that start to shift probably Somewhere in the like 2015, 2016 world, I started to just be more curious about taking belief seriously, wanting to know like why friends of mine or family who are like firm believers, like why they believe what they do. And I just started to kind of question more of the kind of obvious like what like you know do you do you believe that hell is a literal place like kind of big just big obvious sort of like what do you believe is literal what do you think is not and the answers that I got from like close friends and family were just very interesting because you know I think a lot of people would either say no like they actually didn't believe hell was real or they would say, I don't know. I've never really kind of thought about that. Like a lot of the, the, I would say the biggest answer I got was just people kind of like, of course I believe it. And then as we started to talk about it for even like a minute, 
it kind of became like, I've never really thought about that. You know what mm. I mean? And that kind of made me think about it. Well, why did you start? What made you like, was it Trump? Was it something else? These don't seem like Trump related questions. These are more was, theological questions. Yeah, I guess it would have been now that I'm kind of thinking, I guess it would have been starting to think about it like a year or two before that. So 2014, okay. 15, it was, yeah. definitely wasn't Trump related or in any sort of capacity. It was more just like seeing such people with such religious fervor that I started to kind of wonder like, why do we believe certain things? What do mm-hmm. I believe? What, you know, I, it was just a lot of like questioning that. And then it became, when I started to even think about writing faith-based, which is obviously, you know, for anybody that decides to go check out faith-based, it's a buddy comedy. We're not trying to like dive into some sort of like really intense conversation about belief or something like that. But it got me thinking, you know, if I write this movie, which is obviously more jokes and, t- and obvious humor, it is going to put me in conversations where somebody's going to want to know what I believe or, or what. Oh, yeah. And I haven't talked about that in so long. It happened when you came on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I had a moment like back then, you know, before I even wrote it where I was just like, if somebody were to ask me at that point, which was probably like 2018, 19, what do I believe? I don't know that I would like what I would say. And so yeah. that definitely was like a big impetus for really thinking about it more, which even a few years before that, when I started to question things was not really me taking a deep dive into my beliefs. It was just kind of like being curious. And even I would say the the four or five years before that of like mid 2000, mid 2010s, when I was with Emily and stuff, I had definitely drifted much more even then into the kind of Rob Bell, like spiritual version of Christianity versus what I grew up with, you know? So I was already kind of like on that trajectory to a degree. So you were, you were not only pulled astray by your non-religious Jewish (laughs) wife and girlfriend, but also you were pulled by the gravitational waves of the Rob Bell LA spirituality. Uh, You're, you're a walking cliche. Yeah, 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 yeah. A hundred percent. But the thing is, that's great about that cliche is all that cliche is really saying is, Oh, you mean you left your bubble and then didn't, and then realized that like, maybe you don't like your bubble. Uh, That's interesting. So I, uh, I would say that a little differently. I would say you left your bubble for a different bubble. Sure. Whereas I, I, one thing I wrote it down earlier when I, I took note of it when you were when you were talking about that you got to leave your bubble and actually see what you really believe. I think that there I think that and I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily accusing you of this, but sure. I think it's easy to assume that the new place we've landed is more objective than the place we left. Yeah, I think that's usually a trap. It's hard. It's very hard. it takes a lot of work to be any kind of objective. It, it, whatever, however you want to work well, out. I that would term. I would say, I would say like. You could look at that from like the Rob Bell perspective or the Earl McManus of just kind of like, okay, you went from the bubble of like super strict old school religion to kind of new school, new age religion. That's its own bubble. But I will say I do think there's a difference between that and a bubble, for lack of a better word, where like my wife is from. Which right. there, where there is no sort of like you have to believe this because this. Right. There's no bubble there. It's just like my wife's version of of. I don't even want to say spirituality of life is not a bubble. It is just so, and that, and that was like attractive to me of just kind of like, Oh, you don't have some sort of like thing you've been told since you were three and this is how it has to be done. So right, right. I'm sure we all live in bubbles. Like no matter where you are, that's your new circle of friends, your new belief system, whatever it is. But at the same time, I do think there's a pretty big difference between just being open and feeling like, ah, this is it. I, I know it, you know? 
Yeah, I, I obviously like what you're getting at is that you were exposed to many additional sources of meaning, knowledge, experience. And and so yeah. you widened your palette of like what you've sure. seen of the world, right? I agree with you about the bubble thing. We all we but we all and we all still pick what we believe in and what we choose to kind of like where we choose to land with all that with everything. But I think that you need to have experienced all of it in the same way that I think it's great that my wife experienced mosaic with me and stuff right. like that. I think it's very and she saw the positives there. It wasn't right. like she just thought it, thought it was negative. So I just think everybody even if they end up going to a different bubble or something, they have to at least be able to figure out what they believe, you know? Yeah. It's, it's just interesting. If we're saying that many people grow up in very constrained, contained, restrictive environments, like, especially this is true in evangelicalism because of the robustness of the parallel institutions Mm-hmm. So you can be in a Christian school with Christian books and Christian movies and Christian music, and you could basically never – you go to church three times a week. You yeah. can live your whole American life yeah. uh, in that way. That is a unique – that's a yeah. unique property. There aren't a lot of those, and you you kind of grew up in that. I grew I up one foot in, one foot out of that, which I'm actually very grateful for. Yeah. But if we're talking about bubble as in like, well, my family – and my system is not operating on a bunch of untested assumptions. I think that that's not true of anybody. So, yeah. for instance, like, and I'm not picking on Emily. I no. can't. I now can't wait to meet her. Someday. Yeah, I, if she was home, I'd bring her in. Yeah, uh, but her sort of like flabbergastedness at people worshiping at Mosaic. I think that if she went, if you and her went to Mecca or yeah. Istanbul and saw a bunch of Muslims in a mosque that she would probably have said that's really interesting and beautiful and that's culturally true. relevant. So it's, there's a, there's actually kind of a, there's a prejudice against evangelical I, Christians. I, I, think you know? I think, I think you're totally right there. And I think where both of us, which we can, we can get to later kind of landed is that those two things you just described really aren't different. And so therefore, yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that she would kind of like see this person's observation as, as beautiful and saw this one as more of like cultish. But I think we both would agree with each other that like evangelical Christianity is not very different than evangelical anything else. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's more of a culture than a religion. And, and that's uh, one of the big problems. I'm very excited to one day meet her. And if she ever heard this, apologize for coming off rude. Uh, <laughs> I can't and, wait till she's, she's like, did he make a joke about me being the Jew that took away? the? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but okay. So I, that's just to say, that's just me kind of inserting a little bit of like, you we're all, we all come from groups with assumptions. Totally. And so I agree with you insofar as it's like, yeah, it is actually very good and helpful to test out those assumptions by being exposed to other groups with other assumptions. Sure. As long as we're not, I don't want to pretend that the new group is like, doesn't have any of the problems of the old group. Yeah. It's just different problems, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think there's also no, I mean, obviously if there was some sort of like perfect anything, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. We would all right. just be in it. You know what exactly. I mean? It's like, right. uh, yeah, life's messy. Yeah. So, okay. So this is interesting. So you're in your thirties and you're starting to question the theological stuff. It's before the Trump moment. It's not really about sociopolitics. It's really kind of theological. What I think is interesting about that is 
I don't know how – and, you know, listeners, you could write in and tell me this. I don't know how common it is to go at the pure theological questions in one's 30s. It's like either you're the kind of person who gets there sooner because you think about that stuff. Yeah. Or you get to the sociopolitics because that touches everything. Sure. And it's like, well, these people like Trump? What the fuck is going on? Yeah. This is an interesting – I think you hear this less often. So I'm I'm kind of curious if, if you know about – did something – spur this on did you have was there an inciting incident to use screenwriter language uh (laughs) you know that made you kind of go down that path there definitely i mean aside from the fact that i was starting to write the movie faith-based and thinking about like literally just if somebody asked me what i what i believe what would i say there wasn't some sort of like inciting incident i wish i wish i I wish i knew what it was i more just started to really think about it more like i've been told this my whole life i know that it's evolved from the my dad version through the rob bell version yada yada but like at the end of the day are these all just versions of the same thing lighter not light yada yada and Mm -hmm. i and i i started to really feel like there was no negative to me not believing or to me like just saying that I don't know or to, or to say that I, these things don't have a clear answer to me. Like, I think before that I had felt like I couldn't even say that out loud or question it to someone because that's just like, I even have a moment. I remember maybe three or four years ago of saying something of like, I I want, I wonder, or I don't think necessarily that every story from the Bible is literal or something like that. And this person kind of reacted of like, what? And at that point I was kind of like, Oh, you don't, you don't ever, you know, okay, okay, let me go back to my cave real quick. And, uh, you know, know, keep thinking about it. But that reaction even just, it just made me think about it more, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. You know, you've used the word shame a lot and most of the time that you've used it is in the context of sex, but not only. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering if, if you think there was a, an aspect of shame, like if I don't know, what I believe and I haven't checked these boxes uh, or I believe something different than the box I'm supposed to check. Was it shame? Was it guilt? Was it anxiety? Was it, you know, what, what do you think it was? I think shame and guilt are, are a hundred percent a thing that's at least, I can't speak for, for everybody. Obviously for me, something that really stopped me from probably even thinking about it too much, let alone talking about it with anybody. Because I do think that I think that Christianity and and by that I mean like mainstream kind of quintessential evangelical Christianity, there is definitely a culture of like people made to feel shameful for questioning their beliefs or if any of this is real. Mm-hmm. Like I, I I have I I kind of put this on Twitter or or, or and, and Facebook, but the tweet I had written that you kind of responded to, which was kind of about deconstructing in a way, the amount of people, dude, that messaged me something along the lines of, I don't feel comfortable like saying this publicly, but like your tweet resonated with me so much that that made me think like, okay, I'm definitely not the only one that feels that these people feel like they can't even say on Facebook, like I question this belief or say to somebody that they, they know, you know, they're, they're afraid to say it. Right. Just makes me think about it even more, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, what I, where I'm going is like, you left church in 2010 and in 2018, you still feel 
shame at like questioning if hell is real or something. Dude, it's crazy. So that's really something. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild, man. It's like – I mean you got to think too. It's like, you know – Especially on a Facebook, Twitter, I think my following on Twitter is much more people that I didn't grow up with or don't know me as well personally. But like a Facebook or even an Instagram or something, it's still a lot of people both from the world of childhood and people that I knew from like Mosaic 20s. So there's a solid, you know, if I've got whatever, you know, my my Facebook is private. So if I have 2000 friends on there, I would say a thousand of them are from some version of my belief system, you know, growing yeah, up. And yeah. so, so that is like a, the more of the place of like, Oh man, what are these people going to say and think if they all of a sudden find out Luke Barnett, you know, is no longer a Christian. It's like, what do they say at that point? You know, so there's a shame there, you know? Did you have a sense that if you went down that road that you would end up not being a Christian or did you not have that sense at the time? I didn't really have that sense at the time. I think as I, I think I was curious and I was thinking about it and I was starting to really question it and starting to not, you know, before that, well before that, like even, even before 20, 2013, 2014, the mid, mid 2010s, I don't know that I would have, if somebody said, are you a Christian? I don't know that my answer would have been yes. It probably would have been like, uh, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm spiritual. I think aspects of Christianity, I I do believe in yada, yada. I don't think that I would have like, even then said like, I'm a Christian. So I was already kind of like backing out a little bit in that sense. And so when I started to like really explore it, I started to more like when we were writing faith-based actually, even, even further on as we were making faith-based and I was like, I'm going to get asked this. I had, I, I, at that point kind of had to make a decision of like, what am I going to say that I am? And like, I, I kind of landed on agnostic and was just kind of like, oh, that makes the most sense for me. And I had to almost had a moment of like having to come to terms with that. Like it was as if I was admitting that I committed a crime or something. And I was yeah. like, ah, I admit it. I am agnostic. You know what I mean? And it was just a weird, it's just weird, man. Let, let's jump to the present uh, and we, we can go back as needed you know, from here on out to clarify stuff or make connections. But do you identify as agnostic today? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I do. So you, you would say the agnostic thing has been at least, what, three or four years or something like that? Yeah, Maybe I'd, say, I'd probably say, yeah, in, in that world for sure. Like before yeah. that, I was probably like, you know, foot out the door questioning not or, or, or not even thinking about it but wouldn't have called myself a Christian. And then the last like three, three years, four years, I'd probably like – openly say that I would consider myself agnostic. Can you define agnostic as as you mean it? As I mean it, I just mean like, I have no idea. You know what I mean? I don't think, I don't take the Bible as literal. I think that the Bible has phenomenal metaphors. Great. I think Jesus has great teachings that if you choose to live, take a lot of those and lead your life by them, you, they will make for a, a, a very positive life. And I think there's like, a lot that you can get out of it, but I no longer really think that like, Oh, this is literally how this happened. Like God, God sent his, I had a moment recently where like Emily's class, actually she's, my, my wife's just sixth grade and they're doing a whole religious week, basically where somebody was coming in every week to basically just talk about different religions. So they had yeah. somebody to come in talk about Hinduism, yada, yada. And, and then she asked me if I would come in and talk about Christianity. And I was like, all right. And so I did. And I got like halfway through the story and I was like, oh man, I, 
I sound honestly like aside from the time period that it came out, if I was giving the exact same talk about Scientology, it's no, it was at that point I was like, it's no different. Like I'm, huh. I'm just like, I, I think that L Ron Hubbard is, he did this 40 years ago or whatever, but I was like, ah, what I'm saying to someone who has no idea what I'm talking about for me, at least didn't sound any crazier right? As, from what I was describing. And so I had, a mo- even then I was having more moments of just kind of like, ah, I don't, I think, I think it's all great metaphors. I really appreciate aspects of it, but I'm just a, by, by, sorry, we got off track by agnostic. I just mean, I am a hundred percent curious. Like I have hmm. no, I don't have any real answers. I don't like, no, I don't claim to know. I by no means say there is no God that created any of this. Right. In fact, I didn't learn evolution. I didn't study evolution at my Christian school. So it wasn't until like my late twenties that I decided like, uh, more so than the gist that I, I obviously knew, I'm going to actually study evolution. And if anything, the more I learn about evolution, the more I believe in it, I was like, ah, there, there could be a God. Like, I think, I think yeah. that's more, that's more beautiful than like, boom, magic. You know what totally. I mean? So yeah, I agree. Okay. That's interesting. I want to, I want to talk about this moment when you're, you're in the class. First of all, I do think it was <laughs> another thing I'm going to have to answer to Emily for when I meet her questionable to have her agnostic husband come in and do the Christianity talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair though, uh, you know, it was more like, it's not a, it's not a pitch. I'm not pitching Christianity. I'm explaining to them what the belief system is. Right. No, I know. I'm I'm giving you, I'm giving her a hard time. But I do like the idea that like, I like the idea that she was supposed to bring in somebody to pitch it. And halfway through his pitch, he starts not (laughs) believing in the product. But it, you know, it, it would have been interesting, like if you have an if you had an Episcopal priest friend or something, you know, sure. and she comes in and and she explains it. It'd be I wonder what obviously it wasn't a pitch, but like I'm wondering how the talk would have been different. You know, someone who is a clergy person in a liberal denomination who has maybe a more metaphorical way of understanding some of the more literal story as you understand it, uh-huh. would that sound like Scientology? I don't know. It might. It, that's just like an interesting question because because even the language we use to frame the story, you know, let let me let me flesh this out a little bit. So if I go in and and I'm doing the talk to the kids, and my uh-huh. understanding is basically a fundamentalist Christianity, I'll say Christians believe that God created the world in six days. Uh-huh. And that the universe is fourteen thousand years old, or uh-huh. eight thousand years old, and they believe that like Jesus, uh, you know, B- Virgin Mary, all this stuff. You get a you get the right Episcopal up there, and they're going to say something more like Christians believe that in the Big Bang, God was bringing about the slow unfolding of a universe that would eventually have life forms that could communicate with God, and Jesus of Nazareth was in some way connected to God in a unique and special way that we don't totally understand, but he had the, you know, like, just imagine the, the, I guess my problem there, I guess my problem there though, is that like, sure, there's a million different versions of how you believe these different stories were and how you word it can be more beautiful or less beautiful, depending on what kind of speaker you are, what kind of specific belief you are. But at the end of the day, you're still kind of telling the same story. So it's like, yes, the Episcopal person might actually believe that this was beautiful and unfolding over millions of years. But like, I don't know that I necessarily think that their belief in what the text says 
is more accurate to how it was interpreted or intended than the, than my dad, who believes it literally was spoken to existence in seven literal 24 hour days, you know? But so this is where, okay, now we're getting into the, now we're going to get into the, the chat, sure. you know, the fun part, because isn't that the question? Who gets to decide yeah. what the Christian interpretation of the biblical text is or of the Christian tradition, the church history? Like who gets to say this no is orthodox. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, there's no answer. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. People have their own answers to that. But I think that this might lead into sort of like a, an interesting – getting into a bit more of the nitty-gritty here. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, the Bible's not literal. It's it's metaphors. Jesus' teachings are a great foundation for a human life, all that kind of stuff. So, so far, I'm with you. Everything you said there, I also believe. I probably also believe some additional stuff. Um, but I believe those things for sure. Definitely don't believe we're supposed to read the Bible literally. And I go further on Jesus, I'm sure. In terms of his impact on like the future? Or what do you mean? Well, let me ask you this. Like, why do you think – I know that you're not a theologian. I just mean like what's your take? Yeah, yeah. I'm a comedy writer. Let's backtrack. <laughs> <laughs> but OK. So what? why do you think Jesus got so much right? Let's Let's frame it that way. What do you think the causal mechanism is there? You mean like when you say got right, you mean like why were his teachings things that can lead a good life if you yeah, follow why them? Is sort it, of why do you still think today, 2,000 years later, that what Jesus taught is a really good foundation for a human life? Like what, what – exp- not – and I'm not asking this in like an apologetics yeah. way. I no, just no, mean no. like what explains it? What do, you, what do you think explains it? I think we're talking – I think what we're talking about is no different – and granted, before I even say this, I uh, – aside from like some curiosities, I know very little about the Muslim faith. Sure. Okay, just yeah. just to clarify, before I say anything stupid, I am an idiot who does not know anything about anything. But I will say I don't think it's very different. I think that like you're talking about a scenario where years and years and years ago, a person claimed to be a prophet spoke the same way that a Tony Robbins could speak or many, mm-hmm. many different phenomenal speakers throughout history and, and genius people throughout history. And this story has been told around campfires the same way that a game of telephone is played for years and years and years. And a lot of people that I speak to have been told a version of the same thing since they could understand anything. Yeah. And, and so, so while it changes and while it, it keeps going, that's how it keeps going to more and more. Every, every person that has four kids tells their four kids when they're three years old right. and yada, yada. And granted you have different, you have different, you have, of course, anomalies where somebody at 28 finds God. It happens all the time. But like the vast majority of people that I speak to, whether they are Christian or Muslim or any other religion, have been told it since they were very, very little to some degree. And so I guess my answer is that it just kept going. It keeps going. Like, you know, good things keep going. I think if Tony Robbins makes phenomenal points that can have a good impact on you, and if he had been the first you know, one to do it a long time ago, it would keep going and we'd be listening to Tony Robbins's speech, you know. Okay, fantastic. I got I got three things to talk about out of that. I'm just going to give a table of contents. Number one okay. is the idea that Jesus is not the only charismatic person who started a religion or modified a religion or whatever. Number two 
a big thing for you, I think, is this exclusivity claim within Christianity, that Christianity, in order to be true, has to be true over and against other religions which are false or which don't get at the same thing. Like that's maybe a baked in assumption of Christianity that you're operating with, or certainly we were, we were both taught that yeah. uh, the question is whether or not we think it's part of the cake now or not. Obviously we were raised to believe that. Sure. And then the third bit is, is you saying like, look, it just seems like people get the religion naturally that the people around them have, that their parents have, and that what's not going on is billions of people sort of looking at the facts and picking the one that seems most true, they just end up in the one that their family had nine times out of ten. Or could, more. Could be, sorry, I also should say to go along with the yes, but to go along with the family thing, you also also have to include speakers like a Billy Graham, like Erwin McManus, like you know pe- the same the Erwin McManus of two hundred years ago. You know what right. I mean? Charismatic people today just end up being in the line of that faith and propagating that faith and sort of like keeping it going. But if they had been born in Iran, they would be propagating Islam and not Christianity. And yet a bunch of people, people would become Christians because they think the Holy Spirit is speaking through Billy Graham. But if Billy Graham had been born in Iran, they would think the Holy Spirit was telling them to become Muslim. Right. Yeah. I feel like you're leading me into a trap, but I do agree with you so far. I'm not leading you into a trap. (laughs) Okay, so we can talk about these. We'll just we'll just go in order. Well, the exclusivity bit, I think, is most important. Logically, we have to start there. And this is where I like in these episodes to sort of explain my own way. I think about it so we can. So I am a Christian inclusivist. That means I reject the idea that for Christianity to be true, other religions are false. Okay. That's the simplest way of saying it. So you would say, to clarify that statement, you probably then, I I would assume by that statement, you don't believe that in order to go to heaven, you need to be a Christian. I'm already a universalist, so it doesn't matter. Got it, got it, got it. Uh, Even before I was an inclusivist, I, there are different ways of being an inclusivist. And so the terms should be defined. There is what's called the naive Christians version of inclusivism. Um, I believe this is Reinhold Niebuhr or Carl Rahner. Carl Rahner, I think, Catholic 20th century theologian, that God sees people in other faiths as actually Christians and they just don't know it. Uh-huh. That God sort of like rewards their faith, messed up as it might be, and and sees their heart and accepts them as as Christians. Anonymous yeah. Christians is what he called it. Anonymous Christians. Then another one is like Christian pluralism, which is more what I'm at, which is like, and this is actually very related to your your third point about the naturalness. Like if I was born in India, I'd probably be a Hindu. Like it's connected to that, which is that God meets people where they're at and where they're at includes things like the religion of their family and their country. Okay. And that God is not primarily interested in converting all the Hindus to Christians. That's clearly not what God's up to. Okay. And so we should not expect that to be the case. And we should not assume that people in other traditions are not interacting with the God that we are interacting with. Okay. I guess I'm a little confused by that one because it's like you're saying if I'm a Muslim and I believe in Allah. Yeah. You're basically saying that that's not a law. That's your God of Christianity that I think is a law. Well, it kind of depends on where we want to go. Like, I don't think that the Quran was divinely inspired to Muhammad word for word in Arabic. Yeah. So I'm I'm not going to believe all the claims of every faith. Yeah. Right. But 
I believe that there is only one God, and I don't believe that Muslims are talking to some projection of themselves that's not God. But you believe it's the God of, of Christianity. Like and the God of Sufism. I mean, it's all the same God. Okay. And I and I got to be very careful sure. with how much confidence I have in my own uh, depiction of God. Like, let me put it this way. I am a biological, you know, electrified meat bag, mm-hmm. okay, that evolved over billions of years in one corner of a universe that has billions of galaxies, sure. which each have billions of stars, and there could be as many as a billion other Sure. Sentient life forms that have some way of like projecting, thinking, thinking projecting into the future and the past, prayer, sure. communing with nature, or what religious people describe as like sort of God's voice within the, the sure. still small voice. And if I want to say <laughs> that, like the Baptists in America figured out what that God's like. Uh-huh. such that I know that Buddhists are wrong, then I think I'm full of shit. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm trying to situate myself in the cosmic actual context that I'm in, right? Yeah. Like there could be sentient beings who evolve underwater. There uh-huh. are, there's reason to believe that if humans hadn't evolved, that like cephalopods would eventually become roughly as intelligent as humans. Sure. And they would just think of God differently. Yeah. They really would. And – I have no way of knowing how they would think of God. And if they could think of God and they are God's creature the same way that a homo sapien is God's creature, then I need to have insane humility about descriptions of God. So a consequence of that is that humans, when we get these religious systems, we're going to want to claim more than the evidence can support. And so that's what that happens in all these religions. And you get fundamentalist versions of all these religions that really want to claim they know a lot. And to me, it seems transparent that fundamentalism exists because it fulfills a human need, not because it points at anything true. Okay, any follow ups to that? That was a lot. Yes. Well, I guess my, my thought is everything you just described to me is a beautiful picture of God. But I still am not clear what about what you just described to me is anything to do with Christianity versus either any other religion or just taking religion out of it and saying, like, that's gorgeous. That's that's great. God is is amazing. Perfect segue to the first of the three points, then, which is uh, here's my here's my caricature of what you said. Jesus isn't that special. He's the same as four or five other people in the history of human existence okay, okay. who are equally special, to which I would okay. say, oh, so he's really fucking special. Sure. I get you. Even if you took that back and just said he's incredibly special, he's he's one of the greatest prophets, for lack of a better word, of all time. Yeah. I'm still just like, OK, but I don't know that I have to like be- believe anything to do with like the literal aspects that I was told in terms of Christianity of like what, what being a Christian is, what the, you know, all those things I could still just acknowledge, like this was Mm -hmm. a great prophet, you know, the same way that, that somebody else was a great prophet. So there are two ways to attack that question. Attack is the wrong word. Respond to that question. One is to focus on the social context in which you were raised. And I was raised Mm -hmm. and to critique and deconstruct what was going on there that all these people were so damn confident that they had all these details right about mm-hmm. God and, and the way to live a life. That's where I think probably most of the work needs to be done. It's not so much an interrogation of God or even the biblical text 
and Christian history. It is an interrogation of the particular subculture that we happen to be born into Uh that has its own patterns of thought and assumptions that it makes and ways that it plays very fast and loose with the Bible and with Christian history, with the interpretive history of the text. Evangelicalism is not a seminary heavy subculture. It is an anti-intellectual culture. And the problem with that is that, as other people have said, it is primarily an intellectual form of Christianity. It doesn't really focus, for the most Uh part, on spiritual gifts or the Holy Spirit. It doesn't really focus very much on ritual practice. It is about what you believe and thoughts. And yet it's anti-intellectual. It's cutting itself off at the knees. And there are a bunch of consequences of that that you and I – and millions like us have experienced as a result of growing up in an anti-intellectual, intellectual Christianity. Yeah. It's, it, it's self-poisoning, basically. And when it set up all those parallel institutions and did not allow smart and wise people from the outside world to speak into it, it basically set up its own uh-huh. intellectual demise, I think. The other side of it is like, okay, but so still, why be a Christian? You're all open-minded about this. Well – First of all, I don't know – for me, it's like – it comes down to two things. Number one, I experience God in the Christian tradition. So it's – so it works. Like Christianity – what does it mean that it works or what does it mean that I experience God? That you experience God in the Christian version of it. I mean I experience God and the way I go about both trying to experience God when I have a prayer practice or when I – take the Eucharist or, you know, whatever. I do it in Christian ways. You, you just, you just mean the, like a fit, the logistical ways that you mm-hmm. experience God are yeah. Christian. That's what you've chosen to do. Well, it's really what I was born into, but yeah. it has, it has worked for me. Like sure. in Catholic and other high church traditions, there is a, a little bowl of holy water uh, by the door of the church that you, yeah. that people dip their finger in when they go in and out. And they do a little sign of the cross over their forehead. And what that is, what you're, as I understand it, is you are remembering your baptism. Uh Okay. It's a reenactment of your baptism. And baptism is aligning yourself with the life and death of Christ. Sure. So you think about the fact that like uh, in, in Christian theology, that is the infinite becoming finite. It is the ultimate act of humility. It is the Uh ultimate act of solidarity with people and the poor and the oppressed from on high. Quick question for you. Because my only thing is everything we're talking about right now is basically beautiful traditions and way Mm -hmm. to express yourself using classical Christian ways to do it. The same way that like my wife and I do the Seder every now and again, even though she doesn't believe that Moses like literally parted the Red Sea sort of thing. That's all great. And I, I don't really have any problem with that. I guess my more my, my more comes down to like the bigger aspect of like I like doing Seder. I like singing Christmas songs. I like I could I totally appreciate doing, you know, doing traditions like you just described. But that doesn't ultimately answer if and why we or or let's say for this conversation here you believe in the Christian version of what happened what what god is whether that means uh, you know literal or whatever it is but like yes i i can pray i can do things that are just like great traditions of how to experience god but at the same time everyone in every religion is doing those sorts of things mm-hmm. what makes you believe in god in terms of 
not just a higher power that's beautiful? What makes you believe that Jesus is the son of God, like the Jesus, the, the Christian aspect of this religion versus every other religion? Yeah, great question. I mean, I don't, I think that Jesus was uniquely connected to God. I don't know that I have a lot of detail after that. Okay. When you say all these other people in these other religions are doing these other rituals, I'm like, hell yeah, good. Yeah, great. I, that's what, that is what religion is there for. Yeah. I, I think they ought to be doing those things. I don't want them to stop doing those things. So I almost feel like what, what I'm hearing a lot of is that like you being a universalist, it's basically, and tell me if I'm totally wrong here. Mm -hmm. What I've interpreted from a lot of what you're saying is basically like you believe in God, like mm -hmm. in, in nature, in, in your story about evolution, all that stuff. It's all, it's all beautiful. You believe in God. You don't necessarily believe that like your God is different than every than the, than everybody else's God. It's There's all just, God. I'm a monotheist. There's only yeah, one God. Monotheist. Yeah. Only one God. Yep. But it's not necessarily a Christian God versus a, a Muslim God. You think you know because the Muslims are also praying to a God that they think is right. the God. So it's all one God. That's not necessarily one or the other. You very much like the traditions of Christianity and choose to use those as a way to practice your belief and experience God. Yeah but you don't believe in any sort of literal, you need to go, you know, you know, your goal is to convert other people to Christians or make people fishers of men. You don't believe that you need to ask Jesus into your heart to go to heaven or hell. Those yeah. kind of things that I grew up feeling like are, are basic beliefs. Yes. Of, the most basic belief of Christianity to me is you believe that, you know, basically Jesus is the son of God and the savior of humanity. And that, you know, eventually if you believe in him you will go to heaven and if you don't yeah. you will go to hell that to me is like just yeah. a i don't believe sentence. that story anymore but also yeah. arguably neither do catholics or orthodox yeah. and they make up 65 percent sure. of worldwide christians so for sure it's both yes like that evangelical one sentence gospel narrative in the tract yeah i don't think is true yeah there's a way i can make it a metaphor yeah. You know, sure, sure. And, and in, in some sense, this is where it gets unendingly interesting for me is like, how much power do we want to give the language and how much do we like on its own terms and how much do we want to say, well, how is it that people interact with that language? Uh -huh. uh, your mom meeting your dad. And I know that thing, it got a bit muddier over time as your, as your sister tells you, but her desire to go from chaos with a degenerate husband sure. to order and an opportunity to love, to raise you in a loving and involved nurturing environment uh, that worked. Sure. And I think God wanted that and wants yeah. that. So yeah. a big part of it is shifting away from what does God want? That's uh -huh. actually maybe the biggest difference here is that when you talk about being agnostic, you're saying, I was told that this is what God wants, uh -huh. and I don't believe that that's true anymore. Yeah. And I'm saying I was also taught that that's what God wants. I don't think that's what God wants anymore. Uh -huh. But I can find it in the Sermon on the Mount uh -huh. that Jesus is not interested in getting people from hell to heaven. Jesus is interested in the kingdom of heaven coming to earth and eventually something else beyond that that I have a, a, a Christian hope for. Where uh -huh. every tear is wiped away, that you have the the image in Isaiah of God's holy mountain, where basically 
lions don't tear apart lambs anymore and arms manufacturers don't sacrifice tens of thousands of civilians to enrich uh-huh. themselves. I yeah. hope that that exists in the future. I have a capital H hope for uh-huh. that as a Christian. I don't know if that's true. So what is your reason? If you, if you do say that you, you don't take the, you know, that, like you said, the one sentence gospel track version of Christianity, you don't believe in that. Yeah. And you believe that there's only one God and that every religion is kind of, even if they are doing Muslim, they say it's Allah and they say it's Muslim and you say it's Jesus and other thing. They're all believing the same thing. What's, well, they're what's not believing the same thing. I'm just saying to the extent that like, I don't want to, I'm not trying to say, ah, oh, you're all, we're all just the same paper over our legitimate differences. What I'm saying is to the extent that anybody is interacting with God, there's only one God. Yeah. They're interacting with okay. the real God. So hear me out here. Sure. But what is the reason that you, if you don't believe in those other things, what's mm-hmm. the reason that you don't just say you believe in God? Why, why are you a Christian? Uh, because I engage with God in Christian ways. Like, just traditions, I, you mean? Well, not just traditions, language. So, for instance, I pray the Lord's Prayer, which uh-huh. Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh-huh. And when I pray the Lord's Prayer, I go, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Give us this day our daily bread. And I am reminded that I am f***ing filthy rich by global <laughs> standards. Yeah, yeah. And that okay. language is... It is uh, gold to me. It is yeah. diamonds. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know how to think about my insane vast wealth by global standard. Again, you know, I'm sure. I'm maybe I'm we're upper middle class by American sure, standards, sure. but globally we're fucking czars. Yeah. And like yeah, yeah. I don't know how to think about that without something like those words of Jesus to put it in context for me. Okay. Like and that. I've also had experiences like taking the Eucharist and feeling like the spirit of God. Yeah. Like I, I love how the high church traditions like Catholicism focus less on the sermon and more on the Eucharist uh-huh. because the Eucharist, like the last supper, Jesus, wh- whatever happened with Jesus of Nazareth. And I have a lot of question marks about that. Yeah. The thing that ended up being most distilled out of that was the last supper. Uh-huh. And the Sermon on the Mount, basically. And the Last yeah. Supper, he says, take my body and my blood. I, this is me laying down my life for you. And in a theological sense, that's God of the 13 billion year universe uh-huh. saying, you matter, human uh-huh. being and other animal and plant on this little world in this in infinitesimal corner of the universe. Yeah. Now, that could be false and we might not matter at all. And maybe Woody Allen is right. But if it's true uh-huh. that we matter, that is the good news. That's okay. the good news. Yeah. God loves you in this little outpost of the universe. And you know what's funny is when you and I hang out with our kids, yeah, we have an intuition that it does matter. Yeah. We have an intuition that like, no, no, no. Soren is not just cute because, you know, big eyes – Make things sure. look, you know, the way that yeah, dolls yeah, yeah. can. There is something else going on here. We have that intuition. Now, we could be wrong. Yeah. The the atheists could be right, and we're bullshitting ourselves. And I say, if so, fuck it. I'm going to live as if it's real. It's not going to cost me anything yeah. to live as if my love for my son actually corresponds to a value in the universe. Yeah. And so if I'm going to do that, 
I'm going to do it Christianly because it makes sense to me and it works for me. But I'm not going to judge someone who does it Buddhistly sure. or Taoistly. Sure. That's great. I don't have access to their experience. Jesus was not interested in shaming and judging people in other religions. That is clearly the human psychology part of it. Yeah. And then I'll just control for that and I'll think about it psychologically rather than thinking yeah. about it theologically. I feel like I just talked a lot and I got really animated. I, I like all that. I think I think the biggest thing that made me go agnostic, and this is, this is by no means a dig at anything that you just said. Sure. But I think for me, everything that you said that you appreciated in all the ways of looking at the world and, and looking at purpose and feeling like, oh, we mean something and all that stuff, I, I genuinely love all of that. Once I kind of decided – that for me to believe all of those things you just named and to love it and experience it and all those things, I don't need it to be because of this, anything in this book. Sure. It was, it was genuinely like the most freeing thing I've ever experienced. Cause, cause it's like, I think the same things I don't, I don't think of uh, as much as if anything, to be honest, if anything, it has made me appreciate science even more. Cause I, I do think, I do think it's science and it's beautiful and it's, and it's all those things. But I also am not somebody who that, who that's like a militant atheist. Like I don't, I'm not right. somebody that says there is no God. I think there is a God. Uh, I hope there's a God. I, lo I love to think there's a God. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think it's all just so beautiful. Where it becomes so tricky to me is it started to feel really, when I started thinking about it for myself, not, not for what you just said, when I started to think about it for myself, it felt so forced to feel like it has to be a Christian version of these things, especially totally. once I decided that I didn't believe in that gospel track, one sentence version of it, or, yeah. e or even the literal version of, of how it all happened or, or every story. All of which for you was wrapped up in a lot of shame. Totally. A hundred percent. And I think you were right to like, you got to get rid of that shame. I, God yeah. does not, shame us. Yeah. That is not what, that's not what it's about. Yeah. And, and so I think your separation, getting some distance from that, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, yeah. like hearing your story, I'm like, good, get distance from the shame. Well, and I also, I also think it's very interesting to like, look at the thing, things like Jesus, which I, I, I do feel bad. I kind of like, didn't mean to, to discredit why or how powerful Jesus and his message did have have had such an, an incredible effect on the world. I truly don't think he's just a, a, no, a random fine. Tony Robbins yeah. or whatever. But I will say, no. I will say, being more of the agnostic perspective, it's just been so interesting to like look at Jesus as another, if not the best, you know, uh, all time sort of teachers. And, and it's just been an interesting, it's been an interesting kind of way to look at it because I, I guess I just feel like nothing you said just now. I didn't agree with. I like, right. I look at God and look at those things exactly how you just described it. Uh, other than like enjoying the ritual of it and enjoying the traditions, no part of me felt like anything that you named needed to be a Christian version of that versus any other version of God. Um, well, I think that it seems to me like for you to call something Christian is still pretty wrapped up in that exclusivity okay, and yeah. in that one sentence gospel narrative yeah. of like, and let me, let me take that sentence the way I would normally have said it. Yeah. Uh, a chasm exists between perfect God and sinful man. And if, if nothing bridges it, we're all and going to hell. Uh -huh. But thankfully God killed his own son to uh, allow us 
little worms to be with God. Uh-huh. And now if we if we kind of do it right and accept it and, and say the prayer and stuff, then we are mercifully spared. Isn't that such good news? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it such good news yeah. that God is such a vengeful bastard yeah. that he, you know, like, no, that's not good news. Yeah. That's like a... That is like an escape hatch for shitty news. And what's the reason you don't think that's how they intended it in the Bible? Uh, well, first of all, that interpretation of, for instance, atonement theory, sure. you know, that that's called penal substitutionary atonement. Sure. And it's basically 500 years old. Yeah. There are there are hints of it earlier. There's hints of that in Augustine in the fifth century, fourth century. And then there's hints of it in Anselm in the 12th ish century. But for instance, the Eastern Orthodox Church has never thought about salvation that way. And the Catholic Church has its kind of other ways of thinking about it. And now we have access to like all these earlier Christian writers whose voices, basically Christian fathers and mothers, Uh early stuff, patristics and matristics. Okay. And like, we can see that there were other lines of thought that, you know, didn't go as go along as well with like the Roman Empire, for instance. And, And we're sort of, you know, not not uh, elevated and, and didn't become sort of political propaganda for the empire. Yeah. And, and, you know, none of that gives you sort of like certainty about what is the true Christianity, capital T, uh-huh. capital C. No, but it casts doubt on the official narrative yeah. that we get in evangelical spaces, especially, as I said, an anti-intellectual intellectual tradition totally. that doesn't even really do their church history anyway. Yeah. And just waves off Catholics for the most part, more than half of the world's Christians over time, including all the Christians they come from for the first 1500 years with a wave of a hand because of, you know, anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States that they have picked up on that has more to do with like Irish immigration hatred. And so look, it's just a bunch of idiots, basically idiots about that stuff. These are not bad people. No, no, no. I know what you mean. You know, it's like it's like wanting to have a vaccine expert come on to your show and asking a YouTuber. Uh-huh. You know, it's like totally. if you want to know about Christian church history, don't ask an evangelical. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. You know, it's they're like, the YouTuber. Yeah. So that's the thing that <laughs> that's needs a to great be, analogy. <laughs> that's the thing we need to deconstruct having being raised in that tradition yeah. is like which I would I, I would say the biggest thing is it's like when people talk about deconstruction and whatnot, I would say. of the conversations that I'm a part of or that I think are important, even for me, is is like you said, it's like I'm still wrapped up very much in that specific version of how I grew up. And so a lot of like me deconstructing is like less about deconstructing God. You know, it's more deconstructing evangelical white Christianity that I grew up in, you know. Yep, exactly. So when I go to mass, for instance, at the downtown cathedral, and I'm, I'm not Catholic, but I really like mass. Sure. And I haven't been to this in a while because of COVID and everything. But when I go to mass at the St. James Cathedral in downtown Seattle, I'm served, and I've told this on the story, uh, I've told this on the podcast before, but I get my wafer from like the little Vietnamese woman. Uh-huh. And then I look over there and there's like a homeless man just listening. Yeah. And then there's a white businessman and his yeah. upper class family, you know, and it's like, it is such a different experience like physically it's a different experience and i'm in a massive cathedral that's beautiful and the sonics are it's just and like that's christianity also well what's so what's so interesting to me though i i guess where i have such a 
not, not that I'm trying to deconvert you, but, but what I, so much of what, yeah, 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 brother, I've been studying (laughs) this for, yeah. So, uh, I've named people you've never even heard of. So, so, um, the only thing I'll say is that we have experienced recently, like the last few years. So every, every time you talk about something, I'm like, ah, I've experienced this. This is the best we've gone. We all go to her. Jewish temple. We've gone to like uh, 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 there's a traditional a was it AME African African uh, Methodist African Methodist um, Episcopal Church. Yeah, we've gone to one of those with her grandfather like multiple yeah. times. And between those two experiences, it's what you just named about the Catholic Church. It is just like uh, the Jewish synagogue and their prayers and their hymns and uh, the AME Church, uh, their choir. Everything is just like the most. You know, the, we went to the oldest church in Los Angeles is this AME church that's huge. And it's just the coolest experience you'll ever have. Yeah. And those are all experiences that I want my daughter to go through. I want to keep right. going through them, all those things. None of the, and all of those make me feel some phenomenal way about God or something like that. But none of them have ever, and again, it goes back to my evangelical roots, very aware that that's what I'm still focused on. But it's still always for me comes back to like, that doesn't all of a sudden make me believe in any of the literal interpretations of what I've been told Christianity sure. is. Um, yep. So it's more that I walk away believing more in God as a sort of vague, not Christian necessarily, but like I walk out of the Jewish temple or I walk out of the AME church or I walk out of an Eric McManus talk and I'm like, ah, that was a great talk on God. That was a great experience of God, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a question for you, but one little to stay in your geographical area real quick before I forget, the Los Angeles Cathedral, the main downtown Catholic cathedral. Have you ever uh-huh. been in there? Uh, I have, I've walked through it. I've never been to a service. Yeah, me neither. I've walked through it. But you know how on – I don't know if you noticed this, but on the side – so it's this massive building, probably, I don't know, 50-foot ceilings mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And on, on the two sides of the main room, there is a giant tapestry – of saints yes. throughout the ages. Yeah. And they were very conscious to pick saints from all around the world. So they're all different skin tones. Okay. And you look and you see Augustine. Okay. And he's black uh-huh, uh-huh. because Augustine is from North Africa. Yeah. He's from Antioch. He's not white. Yeah, he's not actually European. They did a great job of that. That's interesting. I never even and thought about that. When I look at that tapestry, like when I was in there, I had a spiritual experience. Sure. I was like, oh, this is the church that I am a part of. Even if I'm Protestant, I still look back to Augustine. Yeah. He's a church father for me. Got it. He's an African man. And I'm seeing, you know, they, what, Cesar Chavez and, you know, whatever. Like Martin Luther King is up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is a formative space. Yeah. They have made that building into something that forms you spiritually. And if that's Christianity, I want that. I want to be that kind of Christian. That's great. Now, here is my here is my question for you. Let's leave Jesus's resurrection off the table for now, because I know that that is a hard thing. And that's probably one of it hasn't come up. But I imagine it's one of the things you've thought about, like, this is kind of hard to believe. Whatever. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth willingly let himself be crucified by the Roman Empire in 33 AD. Do you think that happened? I my answer would be that I think that he was crucified in 33 mm-hmm. AD. Uh, I don't have an answer for like how do I think it literally went down in terms of like was this a hundred percent him? But let's not know. let's not get into the literal. Not sure. to cut you off, but I, I I don't I don't I'm not asking are the four gospel accounts of his passion. 
You know, I'm just saying, did he lead an uprising to avoid being crucified or did he accept it and he was crucified? I don't know that I know that. I don't know about the accepting it part, but I do think that he led an uprising that then ended with him being crucified. Yeah. yeah. I do believe in that. And do you believe that roughly Jesus of Nazareth taught the kind of sermons that are, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, that that's basically the kind of guy – he was the kind of stuff he talked about yes. and that he probably did hang out with like drunkards, prostitutes yes. and people that made other people mad. Yes. Okay. I think he was so, a, a great teacher yeah. who, who led an uprising and went against the system ultimately and yeah. then was crucified. Yes. Right. So if you find yourself in a church again and you're to end the Eucharist comes around and it's about. My body and my blood. Yeah. This is for you. Sure. This is the consequence of what happens when someone like me shows up. Yeah. And do this in remembrance of that. Yeah. Now, whether or not that's exactly what he said, this is what the early Christians figured out that they were going to do to commemorate it, yeah. right? Can you imagine a time – and I, I'm sorry if this feels like I'm trying to convert you, reconvert <laughs> you. I'm not. But like can you imagine a time where you can get enough – psychic distance from the gospel tract version uh-huh. to, to just take that at, at that face value of yeah. like, can well, I, I think, participate in this to, you know? Yeah. I th- well, I think for me, what this ultimately always comes down to is like, yes, I think that's super beautiful. I think it's, I think, I think I would, I would be emotional. I think I would feel the exact same way that I would feel about being at a protest T- today uh, for for some sort of injustice totally um totally uh none of the uh, where i'm on page with you but i probably wouldn't be on page with a lot of people that i'm talking to is that as much as it is my bubble that i came from i mean the general belief of god sent jesus as himself jesus was crucified he rose so that we can you know go live, to heaven we basically. can go to heaven if yeah. you believe in god you will go to heaven if you don't believe in god you will go to hell as right. much as you don't believe all that is literal, uh, a huge amount of people do, or yep. they, they at least believe in the general idea of Christianity as Jesus and believing in Jesus and heaven. And so I think um, where I will always land is that everything you just described about the, about the Eucharist in the story of Jesus even is emotional and I love it and I can't wait to um, feel emotional over it and think about it and, and want to make more good in the world because of it. But I will still say that I, I think about those same things with probably lots of different things and that I don't Mm -hmm. know that it makes me believe in any sort of Christian version of it has to be that way for God where you might not, but like some people I will have this conversation with do. Yeah. Oh yeah. There, it does take a little bit of like elbowing to sort of make space for this kind of Christian imagination in certain circles. I guess what I'm heartened by is that there are other circles where it doesn't take any elbow. Yeah. I could just become Episcopal. Yeah. And like most of the people are not going to have a problem with what I described. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's, it's also to, to me to say you're a Christian, like for me to say that I'm a Christian, it means in some capacity that I believe I'm a follower of the Bible, some, something, something along there. And where it gets, where it gets a little tricky when I have these conversations is that at what level of the Bible and of Christianity, for lack of a better word, do we believe things are metaphors? Do we believe they're literal? 
where you know we can go we could we could go back and forth all day on like these things were literal then but then the new testament happened and they changed them it's like well, there's just there's so many thousands of examples and stories in the bible that kind of picking and choosing what we believe becomes difficult. Like I remember like yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Tyler Huckabee recently, uh, one tweet I appreciated, somebody had like he'd done the quintessential. From the Relevant relevant Magazine and the Relevant Podcast. Yeah, and, and he, he had Great Twitter follow. Yeah, great way. Twitter follow. And he had basically said something where, where somebody asked the question that everyone always, you know, everybody was always asked questions on Twitter in order to get engagement basically. And somebody had said, why do you believe in God? And of course, everybody's answering with like versions of either they don't or why they do. And his was just like, ah, my answer has gotten more simple over the days. And it's just, I just do. And there was a part of me that was like, ah, I almost appreciate it because it's hard for me to have conversations with people where I go through the Bible and they're like, well, I believe this is literal. This isn't literal. And at that point, I just, I get to a point where I'm like, well, maybe it's just an interesting, great, you know, book that has great things I can take out of it. You know, I don't know. One thing I keep thinking about in this conversation is the difference between Christian belief and Christian practice. And to some degree, like where I would, where I would graph us there is, yeah, I am willing because I like to do it. I'm willing to put in all those hours of research and conversations with people to figure out which stream of Christianity theologically Uh and biblically I can identify with. I like that stuff. So that's fun for me, but that's actually not when, when you asked me like, why, Christianity, I didn't go there. I went to the practice Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and increasingly I go to practice and not belief. Yeah. I just think like, you know, I do Christian things and I tend to find God in the way that Christians and people of other religions describe their religious experience. I have religious experience in Christian ways. Yeah. And the beliefs are more fun for me. My wife is also a Christian, Mm -hmm. but has spent 1% the uh-huh. amount of mental energy sure. that I've spent on all the details and yeah. well, where did they break off from the Roman empire? You know, yeah. she doesn't care about that stuff. Uh, but well, she also wants to raise our son in the church and like take the Eucharist. Sure. The Eucharist is important to That's her. Cool. Forgive confessing sins is and important. hearing forgiveness is important for them. Yeah, that, I love that. that practice, you know? Well, my other thing too, and I think this is what sets you apart from, let's say the way I grew up or any most versions of evangelical Christianity is that I very much look at all of these things, any sort of religion, as if this, if you feel like this makes you happy and and makes you lead a good life to make the world around you a better place and it doesn't hurt somebody else, I'm like 100% in favor of it. I think it's yeah. it's like, great, that's great for your family. That's a great way to teach them to, to be good and, and whatnot. I, my wife, I, I know I just go back to her, is like, she was just a good example of like where you can grow up being a very good person without religion. And I was like, Oh, so it's not that the religion is needed to become a good person. It's that it can also, you know, there can be very good things that come with it. You know, although even growing up non-practicing Jewish, like I, I think you can make a pretty good case that the values of her family come from the Jewish tradition. They're just separated from, a lot of the observance, but it's well, not like you they could have, say, you could say to anybody though, cause religion's obviously been around for so long that like, it, you right. could go, you could, yeah, but I don't know that that means that it's like secular humanism is basically Judeo Christianity without the supernatural elements. Yeah. 
Sure. I mean, that's basically sure. what it is. Sure. And I think that's great. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> like, great too. I I think that like that shows that Jesus was Jesus and the prophets of the Old Testament were really on to something. Yeah, yeah. That like is true. And so I'm of course since I don't have that anxiety for what for you is shame for me has been anxiety. Yeah, That's, yeah. Your shame is my anxiety in terms of the way that we what interact with this yeah, story. Yeah. When now that I don't have the anxiety anymore about people being sent to hell for not yeah. believing the right things. Yeah. Now I'm free to go, oh, so so the church, the Judeo-Christian tradition basically convinced Europe to invent science, medicine, and hospitals and like the welfare state. Uh cool. Yeah. yeah. Like and gives some sometimes is complicit in war, but oftentimes pushes back against warmongering. You know, like I can identify with that stream of history. Yeah. Well, that one's a bit that one's a bit of a stretch in the sense that like most wars are started over some sort of belief system. But yeah, yeah, yeah. War yeah, yeah. war is really hard. The yeah. religion the way I think about that is that religion is just like insanely powerful. And so it can be used for tremendous good and tremendous harm. Yeah. And one of the ways it's used for tremendous harm is as a cover for war. Sure. You know, that, sure. that's one of the all time worst. Yeah. Uh, or a cover for genocide. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which it often is. So I have one more question for you at the very end. But if you, if you, before we get to that, anything you want to, do we, have we done it? Did we get through it? Have I think we did it. it I feel good. I, yeah, I don't have, I have, uh, I think it's so, I think it's, I think what's so fascinating and where I'm kind of excited about my journey going forward as an, as someone who's just hyper curious and would consider himself someone who doesn't know is that I find these conversations much more interesting now, both in me wanting to know why people believe what they do and also mm-hmm. being interested in the positives of even how I grew up or aspects of, of Christianity that aren't the quintessential evangelical way that I grew up. You know what I mean? And it's like what I find myself walking away from a lot of it is that like, I genuinely love and appreciate a ton, uh, many aspects of it and, and see the benefit, even if I don't know, even if I no longer believe it as a somewhat supernatural version, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, is it fair to say that for you, you've been able to be curious when you were no longer ashamed? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think, I think then that's so much of the problem with evangelical Christianity of the last, let's say 50 years, you know, is that there is that built in shame in many regards, but one of which is this is how, this is the belief. And if you don't believe it, you're going to go to hell. And so even questioning it makes you feel like you're drifting into hell territory. You know what I mean? It's like, And and I was for me it's exactly the same, but it's anxiety. So yeah. I was only I'm now able to be curious about other expressions of faith and other religions and even atheism because I'm not anxious anymore. Sure. And I and, and while I was anxious, I couldn't be curious. They yeah. they literally can't coexist. You can't be afraid and curious at the same time. It's interesting. Yeah. They won't they won't coexist. Um. So here's my last question for you, and it's okay if you don't have anything. But you said something interesting when you were talking about your mosaic days. Yeah. Uh, you had this line, we were created to create, and you had this kind of uh, Christian theological vision. I'm wondering if – is there a way that you can reapproach that phrase though? Because you do create and you're working on another movie and you love creating things. 
uh, you're drawn to that. And you know, we talked a little bit about evolution and the the insane history of the cosmos. And I don't know. I, I just thought that'd be a fun way to end. Like, do you have another angle on we were created to create? Could you rephrase it? Could you could you say it in a different way that loses the baggage? Yeah, but well, that aligns with yourself now. I think. I, I guess I think now the way I look at art in general and create and creating and by art I mean like you know everything from building a house to making a movie is I think that there's something to be said about creating with the intention to make people happy and to make things better. Like, uh, you know, if I were the closer analogy to like created to create would be more that like, you can look at nature, you can look at different things and get inspired and say, Oh, this is beautiful. I want to make something beautiful. But ultimately for me, I now see art as a way to put something good out into the world and by good i just i don't mean just making like a cheesy heartfelt movie that makes people happy i just mean something that like people are affected by in some way but i i no longer like necessarily put it as an analogy to the god of christianity kind of creating the earth and then me creating a piece of art i more think of it as like uh, how can i use art to create something good and make people feel something. But now yeah. you make me want to think of a new catchphrase. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I'm thinking of the mosaics at Los Angeles cathedral. Like mm-hmm. what, what though, what those mosaics made me feel and what they make the thousands of people who pour through there every month in non COVID times feel there's something very cool about the creative process. And I'm glad that that's what your adult life is dedicated to. Yeah, yeah, you, you too, man. I mean, I think I think what's so interesting about like, our, we we have the ability as artists of any sort to basically have an effect on people. Like the art that you said at that cathedral, it's just like you see it and it affects you. This goes all the way across the spectrum of like you watch movies that make you laugh hard, or you watch something like Midsummer that is like. I would never want to make that movie. Like that's not a movie I'll ever make. But I, I, I think the th- I saw Midsummer, and I probably thought and talked about Midsummer more for the next two weeks than any movie I saw that year. Totally. And, and what's so interesting I found about it is I saw an article with Ari Aster where he basically says everybody who makes horror people have their own kind of like somebody does a jump scare, somebody does this. His version of horror is to genuinely make you feel horrified. And honestly, I have never felt so gross and horrified as I did in that movie. I don't want to feel it again. I would not want to make that movie. But I have to give that guy credit. If that was his goal, he made me feel horrified. Um, And that's what art can do. And I hope to at least somewhat use that on a more, you know, positive way. Uh, but like, it, you know, it's just, it's crazy what art can do. Ah, uh, well, I'll have to stop because we, if we've been going on a long time. Yeah, sorry. That, that is it. No, it's great. Um, Luke, I'm going to have a link to your Twitter handle and to Faith Based on Prime Video for people who want to watch the film. Anything else you want to say? No, man, it's great talking to you. I hope we can do it again sometime. I really, really enjoyed it, man. Thank you so much. You can check out those links to Luke's work and his Twitter, as well as uh, a link to our previous episode from last year. 
Josh Gilbert is my esteemed editor. He's available for additional podcast editing work, and his email is in the show notes. You can go to sowyourdeconstructing.com for resources that can help people who are going through some faith change, rearranging, deconstruction, whatever you want to call it, uh, questioning old certainties, any of that stuff. There are resources for therapy, finding a therapist who is competent to talk about that kind of thing, for spiritual practices and uh, traditional prayer and contemplative practices that people have found helpful over the millennia. And if you want to listen to a record that I just put out that is sample-based and good for studying or hanging out by the pool, you can check out Havana Swim Club. That is a self-titled album, and it is there's a link to that to the Spotify and I think you YouTube pages as well uh, in the show notes. All right. See you guys next week.